Welcome to the Rose Theatre, and uh, thank you very much for coming, not only in such numbers, but in such enthusiasm for the annual Rose Theatre Shakespeare Birthday Lecture. In a theatre that Sir Peter Hall created to bring actors and academics together. It's the fourth of the lectures that we've had. Farrah Karen Cooper spoke on feminism and the taming of the shrew. Peter Conradi spoke on Shakespeare and Iris Murdoch. Last year, Charles Nichol spoke on Shakespeare's portraits, and I'm absolutely delighted that Charles Nichol has joined us this evening. It would be a nice thought that all our Shakespeare lecturers came back year after year, and this evening we're enormously honoured that Sir Stanley Wells is with us to give the fourth in the series on the genius of Shakespeare. a double commemoration, not only of uh, Shakespeare, which Sir Stanley is going to lead us in, but also of the partner of the founder of this theatre, because we have a small ceremony in honour of John Barton, in which it's my honour and privilege to be asked to present John Barton with a Lifetimes Achievement Award from the British Shakespeare Association. And the actor and great Shakespearean Andrew Jarvis is here to represent John Barton, who unfortunately cannot be with us tonight, to receive that award. I should explain that the British Shakespeare Association, represented by Peter Smith here this evening, is uh, one of the most important institutions bringing actors, academics, school teachers and the general public together, exactly in fact the kind of vision that Peter Hall had for this teaching theatre. So it's a very singular, distinguished and uh, wonderful honour that um, the British Shakespeare Association is giving in commemoration of John Barton. John Barton has been such an enormous influence on all our thinking and all our appreciation of Shakespeare for so many years. He burst into my world at my, I think it was 15th birthday party, when suddenly I realised people were no longer doing the twist but watching The Wars of the Roses on television. <laughs> And the most formative Shakespearean experience for me was seeing four times in a row John Barton's wonderful Troilus and Cressida. It was a Troilus and Cressida very much of that late 60s, I think it was 1970 moment, which had to do with sexual permissiveness. It had, as much as it had to do, one thought, with Shakespeare, it had a, a, a split second um, of um, total nudity on the stage, I seem to remember, but it also had the relationship between Alan Howard and Dimsdale Landon, I think, played Patroclus, uh, as a very early positive statement of a gay relationship on stage. In all kinds of ways, it was a tremendously provocative, inspiring production, uh, typical of the kind of um, outreach that the Royal Shakespeare Company was then making into the, into the wider society and the wider community. Of course, John Barton was blessed with um, a marriage to Anne Barton, who we must remember too, uh, not least for her um, extraordinary program notes. <laughs> we, of course, all read her books, but she made the program note into an art form at, at Stratford. And um, we all treasure those. It was a most extraordinary and powerful intellectual marriage of true minds. So John Barton has been so much part of the relationship, the marriage indeed, between academia 
and the theatre. But it's very appropriate that in this theatre, which his partner created, where we celebrate the marriage of acting and academia, that he should be awarded this uh, Lifetime's Achievement Award this evening. And um, I'm honoured to ask Andrew Jarvis to receive the Oak um, presentation from the uh, British Shakespeare Association, which has the inscription, even now I put myself to your direction. Oh. Macbeth, I should say, because we're in a theatre of the Scottish play, uh, to Andrew Jarvis, who is going to, I believe, pass it to John Barton. I am indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just briefly, uh, I'm Andrew Jarvis. I'm on the board of the British Shakespeare Association. I'm also chair of its fellowship committee. And as many of you, I'm sure, will know, every year we award honorary fellowships to two outstanding Shakespeareans from the different constituencies of education, performance, academia, or anything else that you care to think of, who, but who have demonstrated this outstanding achievement. Last year, it was Emeritus Professor Anne Thompson and John Barton. And in previous years, it's been Stanley, and it's been pe wonderful people like Reginald Folks and uh, John Russell Brown, but that has, it comes as part of a lifetime achievement. Before, I, w I just want to talk briefly of two giants the one who um, we'll, we'll all be aware of tonight. John is the main giant. He's still with us. But we also lost another giant last week, which was Michael Bogdanov. He was certainly a giant in my life. Uh, I can say, well, I'll say the same thing about John, that when I came to my, under Michael's wing in 1986 with the English Shakespeare Company, we did the Henry Fours and the Henry Five, and then we went on and we did the, the whole of Wars of the Roses, Michael changed the way I thought about Shakespeare. Two years ago at the Stirling Conference of the British Shakespeare Association, two further giants were in conversation, which was Michael Bogdanov and John Drakakis. And they, I don't know if any of you were there, they just sat and talked. And it was like, I think I just died and went to heaven, actually, <laughs> hearing these two. But I realized at the time that a lot of what I now believe about Shakespeare came from Michael and I have drunk his toast every single night ever since his death and will continue to do so for as long as I have breath, I think. That's Michael. The second one is John. John had, I think, probably an even greater influence on me when I first went to Stratford in 1978 to the Royal Shakespeare Company. I had, up to that time, suffered very badly at school and ten years in rep being taught Shakespeare very badly and then performing it very badly. And when I look back on the performances I gave in rep for 10 years, I blush. My touchstone is still talked about <laughs> with the sign of the cross in front of it in, at the Castle Theatre in Farnham. But I went to Stratford and suddenly the lights came on and it was John and it was Sis Berry and it was the actors that had worked under John. Jeff Dench, Bernard Lloyd, Patrick Stewart, who were passing on what John was giving. And that was that extraordinary ability to look at a piece of Shakespearean text, and from my point of view as an actor, to point out to you all the clues 
that Shakespeare has left for you in order to help you to act Peter Hall. Obviously, who, who sort of co-founded in some ways the RSC with John as his book, Shakespeare's Direction to the Actors. And that's exactly what it is. And that's what John pointed out. But also, a wonderful thing that Richard said, which I want to celebrate, my particular kind of uh, passion, is the bringing together of academia and performance. There are many... It, it's worse on our side. There are many actors who won't go there. Oh, academics, well, they know. No, I just get up and do it, love. No, there's so much I have learned. I mean, being on the board of the British Shakespeare Association, reading people like Stanley, like Richard, like John Drakakis, like Peter Smith, it's suddenly you think this all needs to be fed and come together, and that's my passion in life is to try and do that. John, as Richard has just said, absolutely did that from being dean, I think it was of St. John's College in Oxford at the age of 23, and then coming to Stratford and forming that company, helping Peter Hall to kind of take that company forward. Last year, I'm sure many of you would have seen it, Trevor Nunn restaged John and Peter Hall's um, Wars of the Roses. And um, I, unfortunately I was working away so I couldn't see it. But I just got the DVDs um, a few weeks ago. I watch it, and I go, I mean, I just tear my hair out at some of the Shakespeare I see, not least down by the Thames. But anyway, um, I watch The Wars of the Roses, John Barton, and go, that's it. Thank you. That's how you do it. Clarity, the use of language, the knowledge of antithesis and how metaphors work and how you swing them around and everything that John could could teach us. That was, and it was so wonderful. I, I wish I could have been here. Apparently, John came one night and got a standing ovation. I'm quite right too. A wonderful, a wonderful giant. And it will be my privilege to take to him next week this, and also a little book which Alison Findlay, who's the chair now of the British Shakespeare Association, unfortunately can't be here tonight. But Alison put together we. Between us, sorry, let me start that sentence again. Between us, we got people to pay tributes. I got people to write things. We got people on the night to say things. Uh, and, and Richard was predominant in receiving this on behalf of John. Unfortunately, the tape didn't work for the recording because I promised John that he could have it. However, this is working, so hopefully I might be able to take that. But also, Alison has put this wonderful book together with photographs, and with wonderful tributes, well, you know, people like Janet Sussman, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, I mean, just boundless. So it will be a joy to go and see him, and it will, I shall probably pass out with excitement as I take his hand. Because I don't think he remembers me that well. I wasn't that notorious in the company, but he's always very sweet and says he does. But he's just one of those people who is a giant. So to John. Thank you. Richard has looked after this for six months. This great weight has been in the rows, but it's the right place for it to have been. But I thank you, Richard, for passing it on on this occasion. It's an honour. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. A heart of oak. John Barton achieved what so many academics dream of. They crossed the frontier from academia into the theatre world. Um, our guest lecturer has done that as well because he is a great performer and a great man of the theatre as well as of the academy. Sir Stanley Wills 
has been the northern star, the unfixed star in the firmament for me and for Shakespeare scholars for more than a generation. It is 35 years to the day that I had the honor of introducing Stanley Wells at the Lancaster Shakespeare birthday lecture. Uh, during that time, I've um, schemed, conspired, plotted and planned to invite him back. But on every occasion when I've asked him to give a lecture, he has in fact, as he reminds me, attended some of my conferences, but every time I've tried to get him to give a lecture, he's been away receiving an honorary degree at another <laughs> university. When he recently received an honorary degree at the University of Marburg, I'm told that he was rather scandalized, shocked, to be introduced as a deeply political critic of Shakespeare. But I think he is a deeply political critic of Shakespeare because you only have to look at the titles of his books, Shakespeare for All Time, Shakespeare, Sex and Love, Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, The Shakespeare Circle, and my own favorite, one of my favorite Shakespeare books, Shakespeare and Company, with that sly gesture of tribute to Paris, to realize that what Stanley Wells' politics represents and what is most valuable about those politics today is the collegiality, the internationalism for sure, the European dimension for sure, the extraordinary encyclopedic knowledge of every Shakespeare production over several generations, but above all else, the sense that comes through so strongly in Shakespeare and Company, that to understand Shakespeare the man, we have to interpret Shakespeare among his colleagues. And as Stanley says in a lapidary moment in the book, by understanding how Shakespeare belongs to his college, colleagues, you understand the uniqueness of the man. This is a profound politics. It's a politics of community. It's a politics of a collective endeavor, which we like to believe the Shakespeare industry is. And part of this extraordinary collegiality that Stanley represents as well as writes about, the conviviality that makes him such a wonderful and welcome guest among us tonight and on so many other occasions in so many other places across the world, a truly global figure. One of the elements that makes Stanley so much a convivial, congenial figure is that no one in Shakespeare studies, no one in the Shakespeare industry represents so many different strands of what has become an extraordinary multifaceted industry. Uh, the word is used casually, but during Stanley's career, Shakespeare studies has exploded and expanded into so many different spheres and dimensions and specialisms now, often not talking to each other, that it's actually with a sense that Stanley may be one of the last who knew everything. Um, they say that, don't they, about uh, so many scholars of the past. He was the last who knew everything. But Stanley is probably one of the last Shakespeareans who touches all the bases. Film studies, performance studies, biography, historical criticism, so many different institutions. He has been the editor of not just one, but several Shakespeare editions, the 
uh, the new Penguin one, which is, of course, a very popular addition, very much, very uh, absolutely essential to schools, but the Oxford Shakespeare, which is the uh, Rolls-Royce of all Shakespeare's, um, and uh, which represents a completely different constituency to the new Penguin one. So Stanley represents the entire Shakespeare industry in all its multifacetedness. This is exceptional, extraordinary, and we may not see it again. He has, that is to say, a wonderful command of the entire organ. He plays all the stops on the organ. He can touch every note. And uh, that is combined with an intense sense of occasion, a sense of history and a sense of occasion. In the bar, he was regaling us with stories of Peggy Ashcroft in the most romantic Taming of the Shrew, John Barton's Taming of the Shrew that he had known. There is no one who has a more encyclopedic knowledge of productions than Stanley, but there's equally no one who, in my knowledge, who has, partly because of his extraordinary puckish sense of fun, a more wonderful, immediate, intense sense of the moment. Not only of the occasion that he graces, but also of the performances that he records. To get a flavor of this extraordinary combination of history and occasion, I want, you to re I want to read you just a, a little uh, of a very appropriate tribute that is, that is included by Paul Edmondson in the wonderful collection of Stanley's criticism, Shakespeare on page and stage. Um, in Shakespeare on page and stage, there is a luminous, magnificent essay on Peter Hall, specifically because the laser-sharp lens is on one moment in Peter Hall's career, on Peter Hall's Coriolanus. And here's what Stanley says about it, and I want to give it to you as a flavor, uh, a, a, a sense, to give you a sense of how, how Stanley manages to cover this extraordinary historical terrain, but never lose sight of the specific and the particular imaginative moment. Olivia, in 1955, was at a high point in his career. Peter Hall, who was to have the responsibility of directing the great performers in one of Shakespeare's less popular and more difficult plays, was only 28 years old. At the time of this production, I was a student at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford. I had seen Olivia's Richard III in London in 1949 and counted it as my first most exciting encounter with great acting. I have seen Edith Evans, too, in some of her finest parts and thought of her with awe. We were an impressionable lot in those days. I was excited at the idea of this Coriolanus production. I was hoping to be bowled over by it. I have to say this because it may help to explain why I, indeed, I was bowled over by it. I saw it the first night, and I saw it again several times, whenever I could spare the time from my thesis and the money from my grant. And at the end, in the description of Olivia's astonishing fall, that, of course, everyone remembers from that production, Olivier kept his most startling effect for the moment of his death. The fall was a final climactic assertion of Coriolanus's grandeur in the moment of death, the last of a series of masterstrokes with which Olivia had portrayed the bewildering many-sidedness of the character. It was theatrical, but we were in a theatre. 
It was dangerous, but Coriolanus lived as well as died dangerously. It was the final shock for an audience that had been given many surprises, and it left me, at least, overcome with awe. I left the theatre on that first night, profoundly impressed, and walked the streets of Stratford before I wanted to talk to anyone. That, I think, is what Aristotle meant by catharsis. That, I think, is what is great criticism. I give you Stanley Wells to give the 2017 lecture on the genius of Shakespeare. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for, as I once said on another occasion, for that very nice obituary. Uh, <laughs> there are two questions that people often ask me when I, at, in a question time after I've given a lecture. One of them is, what's your favourite Shakespeare play? And I've already been asked that tonight. The answers are, King Lear, I think, is the greatest, and The Midsummer Night's Dream is the most delightful. Uh, there are other ramifications. The other question that people often ask me is, what got you interested in Shakespeare? And that's where I'm going to start this evening. Because the first Shakespeare play I remember reading was A Midsummer Night's Dream. I was about 11 at the time, and I was at school, at grammar school in Hull, and we spoke it around the class, and I must have been cast as Hermia, because my only real memory of the occasion is a sort of priggish frisson but having to speak the word hell in the line, oh hell, to choose love by another's eyes. We were a very innocent lot in those days. <laughs> it was when I was three or four years older that I was first deeply stirred by Shakespeare's language. <clears throat> and this is in one of the sonnets, not a play. It was sonnet 29, the one beginning when, in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, and I was especially moved by the sestet, the last six lines. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, happily I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. In part, of course, I was responding to the subject matter, to the poem's rapturous idealization of friendship in its equation of love with wealth at a period of emotional wake awakening. But I was conscious, too, of the extraordinary musical power of the lines, the consonance between sound and sense in that image of the lark which beats across the boundary of the line ending to rise singing into the ether, and the resounding metrical regularity with which the closing couplet affirms the triumph of spiritual over worldly values. The enjoyment of Shakespeare's verbal power that was stirred in me at this time has never left me. It has many different sources, which vary from one work to another. Important among them, I think, in its capacity to go on provoking admiration and wonder in innumerable re-readings is the way that Shakespeare can pack his lines with a multitude, a multiplicity of suggestiveness, while at the same time 
maintaining a rhythmical pulse which carries the mind forward in spite of all temptations to linger over details. You can see it at a comparatively straightforward level in such a well-known speech as Jacobs's speech on the seven ages of man. The forward impetus is set up by the structure. One man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. And then there's the verbal richness, which can be illustrated by the well-known picture of the schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. The sense is clear, but it compresses a lot into a small space, especially in that phrase, shining morning face, with its implication that the shine is likely to have disappeared by the afternoon. <laughs> More subtle and complex, but still irresistible, in its extraordinary fusion of the rhythms of ordinary speech with a blank verse structure, is Hamlet's first soliloquy, written in a style that presents us not with conclusions, but with the very processes of Hamlet's mind. Vocabulary, syntax, rhythm, all contribute to the effect that it should come to this. But two months dead, nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this, Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not be team the winds of heaven, visit her, race, her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet within a month, let me not think on frailty, thy name is woman. A little month or ere those shoes were old with it she followed my poor father's body like Niobe all tears. Why she, even she, oh God, a beast that once discourse of reason would have mourned longer, married with mine uncle my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within a month, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing of her gallant eyes, she married. Oh, most wicked speed, to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. The anguish that it causes Hamlet to think of his mother's over-hasty marriage is conveyed here, isn't it, as much by the tortured syntax as by direct statement. We share his difficulty as he tries but fails to assimilate the unwelcome facts into his consciousness, seeking to bring under emotional control the discordant elements of his disrupted universe, his love of his dead father, his love of his mother, combined with disgust at her over-hasty marriage to the uncle he loathes, and the disillusion with womankind that this has caused in him. It's a verse style that exploits the rhythms of ordinary speech. At other points in Shakespeare, the impetus is provided by high rhetoric, as in Henry V, for example, Julius Caesar, Sometimes, especially in the later plays, like Coriolanus and Cymbeline, it's complicated by a knotty intellectuality, which gives the mind a lot to grapple with. But I don't want to give the impression that I find Shakespeare enduringly enjoyable only because he sometimes stretches my reading powers, engaging me in a kind of invigorating mental tussle. <laughs> 
Of course, I continue to enjoy the lyrical verse and prose that have great, brought great popularity to A Midsummer Night's Dream or Romeo and Juliet, for example. They're there again. One shouldn't underestimate the artistry of passages which may be so familiar that there's a danger of breeding contempt. It's, difficult, it's as difficult to analyse the beauty of some of Shakespeare's most popular lines as it is to explain the appeal of a folk song. And indeed, it is to our musical senses that much of his writing appeals. It's a bit strange, isn't it, because only a skilled politician would be able to reconstruct the spectrum of sounds that would have been evoked by Shakespeare's verse in his original audiences. But of course, music doesn't depend for its effects purely on tonal values. It works also through rhythm, repetition, variation of pitch, even through silence. Some passages in Shakespeare seem to me to be quintessentially musical in their effect. I think, for example, of Florizel's praise of Perdita in The Winter's Tale. What you do still betters what is done. When you speak sweet, I'd have you do it ever. When you sing, I'd have you buy and sell so. So give alms, pray so. And for the ordering of your affairs, to sing them too. When you do dance, I wish you a wave of the sea, which you might ever do nothing but that. Move still, still so, and own no other function. Even at a single hearing, you can be conscious, I think, of the importance of repetition in those lines. Also, of an incantatory rhythmic fluctuation. Syntactic parallels are repeated when you speak, when you sing, when you do dance. So our individual words, you, comes eight times in those lines, so four times, still three times, sing twice. In part, these repetitions create a rhythmic dynamic which presses the mind forward. But I think one of the most striking and original effects of the lines is the way in which imitating rhythmically the swaying motion of the dance in that image of the wave of the sea, they create simultaneously an impression of movement and of stillness, which itself is characteristic, isn't it, of a wave, a wave which, it, which retains its shape, even as the elements that's, that it's made up of are in continual motion. And it does this in a subtle wordplay that draws on the two contrasting meanings of the word, the repeated word, still, still meaning both continued but also motionless. And the sense of timelessness that this creates represents, I think, the ideal quality of Florizel's love and also links with a complex chain of images in a play which is profoundly concerned with time as both destroyer and redeemer. Andrew's ta talking a bit about a lot of introductions and about verse speaking. One of the greatest pieces of verse speaking I've heard in recent years was Judith Dench's speaking of the chorus, uh, of Time's chorus in The Winter's Tale in Kenneth Branagh's production recently. And I was hearing her only this morning uh, in a repeat of a broadcast she gave yesterday, I think it was, uh, about, um, about John Gielgud and his speaking of verse. 
uh, and, and the importance of the rhythmical sense of delivery. Chasewith's writings are often praised for their unity, but the way that he can relate details to overall imaginative concepts. And certainly that's an important factor in his, in his as a source of his imaginative power. But I also value the moments when he goes off at a tangent, inconsequentialities, which delightfully introduce an element of the incongruous, a fanciful elaboration that awakens our sense of the diversity of experience rather than its coherence. For some reason, Taming of the Shrew, perhaps a slightly underrated play, seems very rich in such pleasures. I think of the extraordinary image with which Petruchio's servant, Grumio, illustrates how cold he is. He says, well, Curtis asks, who is that called so coldly? And Grumio, Grumio replies, a piece of ice. If thou doubt it, thou mayst slide from my shoulder to my heel with no greater a run but my head and my neck. It's a Surrealist image. It's almost a sort of Boschian sort of image, isn't it? The picture of him, Grumio, picturing himself as a frozen surface of a sheet of water which his fellow servant could use as a slide. It's, it's centrifugal rather than centripetal. It's a sublime irrelevance rather than a contributory detail. And there's a rather similar quality in the same play in, which, in the words with which Biondello, who is in a hurry, encourages his master Lucentio in his intended elopement. I cannot tarry. And your wench married in an afternoon as she went to the garden for parsley to stuff a rabbit, and so may you so, and so would you, sir. <laughs> well, of course, Shakespeare was a very sophisticated verbal artist. Many of his most powerful effects depend on his mastery of rhetorical techniques, some of them derived from classical literature, which he would have learned at school in Stratford. The rhetorical basis of his art is more readily apparent in his earlier work where I think it's closer to the surface. You may think, for example, in the elaborate wordplay of Love's Labour's Lost, or the high rhetoric of Richard III, or in a different key, very different key, of Richard II. But Shakespeare always knew the value of simplicity. Although in Love's Labour's Lost, he delights in the exuberance of his verbal powers, he also shows how hollow rhetoric can be. The play's most important communication is made not through words, but in a moment of silence, as Mercaday brings the princess news of her father's death. He says, the king your father, and the princess says, dead for my life. Even so, my tale is told. The tale is told without being told. It's told in a moment of highly theatrical silence. That sort of sudden simplicity is among the things that one constantly marvels at in Shakespeare. The way a plain phrase, the sort of language that out of context would seem entirely unpoetical, words such as we ourselves might speak without thinking twice about them, can have a devastating effect because of the way they are placed. The most powerful sustained example of this method comes, I think, in King Lear. The reunion of Lear recovering from madness, the reunion of Lear and Cordelia 
is heralded by one mighty image. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. But after that, the episode is sustained by a succession of entirely plain phrases. You must not kneel. I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And so I am, I am. No cause, no cause. I am old and foolish. Of course, the effect of sublime simplicities like these depends greatly on the dramatic situation that's been set up and also on what has gone before. And in King Lear, what has gone before is a lot of very naughty language. Rather, as say in the late Beethoven Quartet, a lyrical phrase will strike all the more poignantly because of the emotional turmoil that it emerges from. Our enjoyment of such passages, in other words, depends on the awareness of the structure of which they form a part, of the pacing of the dramatic movement, the juxtapositions within it, its climax in, and its resolution. It's both highly theatrical writing as well as highly poetical writing. Of course, one could go on quoting favorite passages, trying to analyze their effect for many hours. Whole books have quite probably been written about Shakespeare's verbal artistry. He was a great poet and a great prose writer, too. But in Shakespeare's time, the word poet signified a writer for the stage as well as for the page. And Shakespeare's greatness as a dramatic poet depends greatly on the fact that he had an imagination that saw and used words not only for themselves, but as the projection of a larger vision of which words are only a part. He's famous, for example, for his powers of projecting, uh, portraying individual character, powers which depend partly on his literary art. Alexander Pope, in his uh, preface to Shakespeare, wrote, every single character in Shakespeare is as much an individual as those in life itself. It is just as impossible to find any two alike, and such as from their relation or affinity in any respect appear most to be twins, will upon comparison be found remarkably distinct. In addition to this life and variety of character, we must add we must add the wonderful preservation of it, which is such throughout his plays that had all the speeches been printed without the very names of the persons, I believe one might have applied them with certainty to every speaker. Well, that's nonsense, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Think of, uh, for example, of characters in Macbeth, like Lennox, Ross, Angus, Caithness, and Menteith, whose names sound like those of decreasingly important railway stations along a minor branch line in Scotland, and whose personalities are no more distinctive. Still, Pope does identify there an important characteristic of Shakespeare's dramatic power, the chameleon-like quality with which he can switch from one style of verse or prose to another, and the flexibility with which the language even of individual characters can be invested. I think of the way, for example, that Caliban's normal roughness of speech in The Tempest can open up into the extraordinary lyrical expressiveness 
of Be Not Afeard. The aisle is full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will have about my ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after long sleep will make me sleep again. They're lines which depend on our sense of the character, and they shift the moral perspective in a way which is, I think, peculiarly Shakespearean. And they do so because of Shakespeare's exercise of literary power. Still, the audience's apprehension of character in its totality depends on the realization in performance of a subtext, on the projection of literary style as the revelation of an integrated personality. Characters like Brutus in Julius Caesar or Malvolio, the Twelfth Night, Viola again in Twelfth Night, or Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra. These are not just the sum of everything that they say and they do and it is said about them. They are also the effect of the realization of all these qualities in the figure of a particular actor as that actor performs the role. I think we see this at its most obvious in comedy. Shakespeare's works are full of humor. Some speeches and exchanges are amusing in themselves on a purely verbal level. We may think of some of Falstaff's soliloquies or of Hotspur's satirical portrait of the popinjay who talked so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds, God save the mark. Or at a more serious level of probing comedy, we may think of Hamlet's interchanges with Polonius and with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And there are some words which are, in effect, instructions to the actor to convey wordless emotion rather than an attempt by the writer to express emotion verbally. Think of that very elemental signifier, O which on the printed page, coming at a climactic moment, can have anticlimactic effect. But Shakespeare asks his actors to convey many varied emotions through it, sometimes indeed leaving it up to his actor to decide exactly what emotion should be conveyed. It can have brilliant comic force. In Antony Cleopatra. Phidias, putting Octavius Caesar's case to Cleopatra, carefully explains to her, he knows that you embraced not Antony as you did love, but as you feared him. Cleopatra says, oh. Mm -hmm. And that apparently impassive oh can convey a world of meaning. The interjection oh can be a, tr a cause, a cue for the actor to convey a transition from one sense of mind to another. In the fly scene in Titus Androicus, just recently, rather to my sadness, reattributed to Thomas Middleton instead of Shakespeare, but still <coughs> hasn't yet been proved. In this scene, <coughs> Titus rebukes his brother Marcus for killing a poor, harmless fly. Marcus defends himself by saying it resembled the villainous Aaron. Pardon me, sir, it was a black ill-favored fly, like the Empress's moor, therefore I killed him. To which Titus responds, oh, oh, oh. 
then pardon me for reprehending thee, for thou hast done a charitable deed. In Deborah Warner's brilliant Stratford production, Brian Cox playing Titus made a profoundly memorable effect out of those three O's, those three monosyllables, suggesting through them a crazed, slowly dawning acceptance of Marcus's explanation. Oh, oh, oh. Which then turned into a passionate endorsement of his brother's action as the fly came to seem to be a symbol of all people who had wronged him and his family. And he threw himself upon the table, viciously stabbing at the place where the fly had been. And there are points in which the surrounding dialogue indicates fairly clearly what effect Shakespeare was aiming at. In Othello, after Desdemona's death has been discovered, Othello falls on the bed with the inarticulate cry of oh, 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 to which Emilia responds, nay, lay thee down and roar. So there is an inbuilt stage direction that he's to say oh, oh, oh as a roar. Uh, or in Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene, her oh, oh, oh is glossed by the doctor's comment when he says, what a sigh is there, the heart is sorely charged. In the DVD of the famous Trevor Nunn production, Judy Dench makes out of those three O's a horrifying cry of despair, lasting some 46 seconds. And, a num and on a number of occasions, Shakespeare uses O as a climactic, if inarticulate, expression of suffering. As in Othello's, oh, Desdemona, dead, Desdemona, dead, oh, oh, it does make up a verse, right? or at the moment of death, or Hamlet's, oh, 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 which follows the rest is silence in the folio text of the play, or Lear's, oh, 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 which is almost the last sound he makes in the quarto text, much virtue in O. Inciting those instances of points at which Shakespeare's text shows that he's depending on theatrical values as well as, or in place of, literary values, I've tried to illustrate my points by referring to the plays in performance. Inevitably, much of one's enjoyment of the work of an artist who writes for performance is inextricably bound up with the act of performance, which inevitably means with particular performance. We might see this as an illustration of the impurity of the dramatist's art, of the, of the fact that the playwright lacks final control over the fruits of his work, that his work will be mediated to audiences in a manner which can even have a corrupting effect. But I prefer to look at the relationship between the dramatist and his interpreters as a joyful and necessary interaction of personalities, which helps all those engaged in the theatrical act to realize their capabilities to the full. It's true other dramatists besides Shakespeare, of course, uh, but it does seem to me that Shakespeare's genius lies partly in the, comprehen the comprehensive range of opportunities that his plays offer to actors. The major Shakespeare roles have become acknowledged as touchstones of the actor's art, because in these, act, in these roles, actors can realize and stretch their capabilities. 
which is why they want to go on performing these roles, and also, of course, why we are happy to go on seeing the roles variously performed, why one can go on seeing Hamlet year after year in a different succession of realizations. Every time you're seeing both the same and a different play, and you're seeing the same and a different Hamlet as it's variously embodied through the physique, mind, intelligence, and vocal prowess of individual actors, both male and sometimes female. As for those who read Shakespeare, as well as seeing his plays performed, this kind of enjoyment is not confined to performance, but goes on informing and enriching our reading and rereading of the plays, overlaying them with a series of associations which recall for us the mediated force that lines had in performance and which help us to, to realise the range of possibilities inherent within a single text. Some performances, and now, Richard, I'm reverting to something you've already quoted from, uh, some performances do burn themselves on the mind. It's well over 50 years since I saw Laurence Olivier as Coriolanus, several times, as Richard said, but I can't read that play without constantly rehearing his inflections, remembering, for example, the violent energy that he gave to the fires of lowest hell fold in the people. The comedy he found, as he said, look, I am going, after he had at last succumbed to his mother's will, like a little boy, you see, I'm doing what you told me to. And the stunning climactic power of his final boast, boy, False hound, if you are richer annals true, tis there that like an eagle in a dovecot eye for lattered yumble skins in cabiales. Alone I did it. Boy, at moments like that one felt one was not just watching a clever actor, but in the presence of a superior being. The imprinting power of distinguished performances is not limited to the big roles, to the great roles, sometimes even a lesser actor in a small part, can achieve such a complete fusion of role and personality that the actor speaking of certain passages resonates in the mind long after he's given up the role. I remember a long past Brackenbury in Richard III for the meditative lyricism with which he spoke, sorrow breaks seasons and reposing hours, makes the night morning and a new tide night. And I hear him again as I read the lines. To say that our continuing enjoyment of Shakespeare depends in part on memories of performances that we have seen is not to diminish Shakespeare, only to acknowledge that he was a thoroughgoing practical dramatist who knew that the act of dramatic creation did not stop when he'd put down his pen. But an exclusive memory of single productions would have a limiting effect on a reader's imagination. Performance implies interpretation. No actor can be just a glass through which the author's conception of the role is visible any more than a director could give us the play exactly as Shakespeare would have directed it. Even if the scholars could give the director precise and full information about the theatrical conditions of Shakespeare's times, you can't. The actor's physical qualities affect performance, age, height, looks, the sound of the voice. A director indeed may affect a fresh interpretation of a role simply by casting, casting in that role 
a performer who is either younger or older than is customary. In recent years, Lady Macbeth has seemed to be getting younger and younger as directors seek to depart from the stereotype of the domineering matron. Conversely, we've had some interesting and some slightly less interesting older Beatrices in Much Ado About Nothing, suggesting a woman who has matured and to some extent hardened, been hardened by experience. Judy Dench was, is an example in that wonderful production by John Barton, whom we've been celebrating. Actors have varying ideas about what's important in a role, making different selections among the options that are open to them. To stay with much ado for a moment, there is a rather enigmatic interchange between Don Pedro and Beatrice, which may seem to be irrelevant, and in fact, which is often cut in performance. Don Pedro says to Beatrice, come lady, come, you have lost the heart of Signor Benedict. And she says, indeed, my lord, he lent it me a while, and I gave him use, that's interest for it, I gave him use for it, a double heart for his single one. Marry once before he won it off me with false dice. It may seem like a passing quip or a false trail, the suggestion of a previous relationship between Beatrice and Benedict has not been made before, nor do we hear any more of it. But I remember Judy Dench in, in John Barton's production made this the keystone of her interpretation, implying a lurking bitterness behind some of her jesting with Benedict, a sense of something unresolved which added poignancy to the later stages of the wooing. And when Judy Dench came to, to, to direct the play with Kenneth Branagh as Benedict, uh, he, she, he, uh, Judy chose to give the same uh, unusual warmth to the friendship between Benedict and Claudio, so that Benedict's response to Beatrice's kill Claudio, of course, one of the most famous theatrical crooks in the canon, uh, ben, uh, when Benedict says, not for the wide world, it, in that production it seemed to be motivated by personal feeling rather than by principle. And his last words to Claudio, come, come, we are friends, had the force of a desired reconciliation. Well, the kinds of theatrical re-exploration of Shakespeare's text that I've been speaking about can be paralleled, of course, by critical rereadings of the plays. The fact that the plays are open to this kind of reinterpretation, whether in points of detail or overall, and that it can be conveyed to us in performance, is among the reasons that we go on re-enjoying Shakespeare's plays. We can also enjoy, of course, the very varied theatrical styles in which they have been presented, varying as much as from uh, John Barton's highly romantic interpretation of The Taming of the Shrew to Michael, the late Michael Bogdanov's really shatteringly um, contemporary uh, and in some ways very shocking interpretation of the play. When Michael Bogdanov directed The Taming of the Shoe, as we went into the theatre, there was a very romantic set on stage, looking as if it was going to be a conventional interpretation of a comedy. Uh, and, and as the lights went down, a drunken figure came up the aisle uh, and started assaulting the, one of the usherettes. And it was very frightening. Indeed, when I was there one night, some people rushed out of the theatre it was a time when there had been a number of bomb scares, the theatre had been closed once or twice, and people had been asked to, to leave. 
because they felt that there was a danger that something was going to happen. Then the actor went onto the stage and destroyed the scenery, the set. Well, of course, it was all part of the show. It was Jonathan Price turning into first Christopher Sly and then into a Petruccio. And after that, we had a very uh, radical reinterpretation of the play, and one which, whereas in the Barton production, the coming together of Petruccio, played by Peter O'Toole, and Peggy Ashcott as, as, as uh, Catherine, whereas in that production, it was a very romantic, really warmly loving conclusion to the play, in the Bogdanov one, the, the, the shrew Kate was horrified uh, by, uh, by, by what she had to say, uh, and Benedict Crin, uh, sorry, Patricio cringed uh, with embarrassment at her apparent subservience, the sort of very, very varied interpretations which the play can be given. To be fair, Bogdanov did make quite a lot of textual changes. Well, these kinds, uh, uh, in any case, let me, let me take over. In any case, the phenomenon that we call Shakespeare is not just something that can be appreciated only by reading or by seeing performances of the original text, whether complete or not. It's also everything that's happened to and as a result of these texts since they were first written. We can enjoy Shakespeare in different media, on film, in radio, television, in adaptations like Kurosawa's film Ran, based on King Lear, where the daughters become sons, or operatic, operatic versions like those of Verdi, his great Othello or Falstaff, or Berlioz's, uh, 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 sorry, much ado, uh, or, um, or, or Elgar's symbolic poem Falstaff, ballets like uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, and so on, or musicals like Cole Porter's Kiss Me Kate. We enjoy Shakespeare through the innumerable paintings on, uh, on Shakespearean themes, even through the artifacts based on them. Knowing Shakespeare, we can even enjoy works which subject him to imitation parody or burlesque. Some of them crop up in unexpected places. I wonder if you remember Hamlet's soliloquy as performed by the Duke in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, where it's called the most celebrated thing in Shakespeare. It goes like this. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. Or who would fardels bear till Burnham Wood do come to Dunsinane, but that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep, great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others that we know not of. There's the respect that must give us pause. Wake, Duncan, with thy knocking. I would thou couldst, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the law's delay, and the quietus which his pangs might take in the dead waste and middle of the night when churchyards yawn in customary suits of solemn black, but that the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller remains breathes forth contagion on the world, and thus the native hue of resolution, like the poor cat of the adage, is sicklied o'er with care. And all the clouds that lowered o'er our housetops, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, but soft you the fair Ophelia. Ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery, go. <laughs> well, that's Mark Twain. And even in the midst of educational conferences, memories of Shakespeare can surface provide entertainment and enjoyment 
for the delegates. Scarcely known at all, I think, nowadays, is a skit on Hamlet. It's a skit based on the look-and-tell teaching method, which circulated at a teaching conference during the 1960s. It goes like this. See Hamlet run. Run, Hamlet, run. <laughs> he is going to his mother's room. I have something to tell you, mother, says Hamlet. Uncle Claudius is bad. He gave my father poison. Poison is not good. I do not like poison. Do you like poison? <laughs> oh, no, indeed, says his mother. I do not like poison. Oh, there is Uncle Claudius, says Hamlet. He's hiding behind the curtain. Why is he hiding behind the curtain? Shall I stab him? <laughs> what fun it would be to stab him through the curtain. See Hamlet draw his sword. See Hamlet stab. Stab Hamlet, stab. See Uncle Claudius's blood. See Uncle Claudius's blood gushing. Gush, blood, gush. See Uncle Claudius fall. How funny he looks, stabbed. Ha, ha, ha. But it is not Uncle Claudius. It is Polonius. Polonius is Ophelia's father. You are naughty, Hamlet, says Hamlet's mother. You stabbed Polonius. But Hamlet's mother is not cross. She's a good mother. Hamlet loves his mother very much. Hamlet loves his mother very, very much. <laughs> Does Hamlet love his mother a little too much? <laughs> Perhaps. See Hamlet run. Run, Hamlet, run. I'm on the way to find Uncle Claudius, Hamlet says. On the way he meets a man. I am Laertes, says the man. Let us draw our swords. Let us duel. See Hamlet and Laertes duel. See Laertes stab Hamlet. See Hamlet stab Laertes. See Hamlet's mother drink poison. See Hamlet stab King Claudius. See everybody wounded and bleeding and dying and dead. What fun they're having. Wouldn't you like to have fun like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, in talking about Shakespeare's genius, I've emphasized a self-renewing quality in his works which comes, I think, from a peculiar openness to interpretation, as if he himself had had the wisdom to leave his plays slightly unfinished, to hold back from final decisions so that future ages could read into them the preoccupations of their own times, so that there is, as it were, a required dynamism of interaction between the works and their readers or audiences. It might be argued that that's a necessary aspect of all dramatic art, but I don't think we feel it to anything like the same extent of Johnson or Congreve or Sheridan or Shaw. Perhaps there is a more mythic quality about Shakespeare, which enables his plays to speak to generation after generation, even in translation and adaptation. Perhaps it's partly because he was essentially a romantic dramatist, writing about the past and about other places. But I don't want to imply that Shakespeare has no identity, that he is just a mirror in which we start see nothing but our own reflection. There are meanings in Shakespeare and values and attitudes of minds with which we can identify or to which we can aspire. To try to identify those qualities is to risk turning them into empty commonplaces because they can be experienced to the full only through the complex organisms of which they are a part. But let me just try finally to identify some of the fundamental sources of my admiration of Shakespeare's genius. I admire the value that he places on intelligence and wit as ways in which we may arrive at the truths around ourselves and the world. 
Along with Shakespeare's celebration of wit, goes his appreciation of humour, his enjoyment of human idiosyncrasy, of the spirit of carnival, of the world of cakes and ale that he celebrates in Sir Toby Belchon in Falstaff, his humane acknowledgement that unwitty, even unintelligent people can embody virtues that their superiors lack. He's, after all, Constable Dogberry, who, however unwittingly, brings about the happy conclusion of much to do about nothing. And it's the clown Nick Bottom who has a most rare vision, a dream past the wit of man to say what dream it was. I respond to Shakespeare's portrayal of heroism, the physical courage of a Coriolanus, even a Macbeth, the moral courage of an Isabella, a Desdemona, or a Cordelia, or at the other end of the scale, such an insignificant character as Francis Feeble in Henry IV, Part Two, who asked by Falstaff if he will make as many holes in an enemy's shield as he has done in a woman's petticoat, replies, I will do my good will, sir. You can have no more. I value Shakespeare's sense of the mystery of life, of the inadequacy of human reason to explain the bases of our existence, his awareness of our need for illusion, of the value of relaxing of the reason and an admission of intuition, of the need to temper wit with folly, of the transfiguring power of an imagination that, as is said in A Midsummer Night's Dream, can grow to something of great constancy. I value Shakespeare's celebration of ordinary everyday virtues, of gratitude, of the optimism that enables the Duke, in As You Like It, to translate the stubbornness of fortune into so quiet and so sweet a style. His compassion of mercy. Shakespeare is above all the celebrant of love in all its manifestations. The love that informs friendships, such as those of Antonio and Bassanio, Hamlet and Horatio, Rosalind and Celia. Young love that includes sexual passion, as of Romeo and Juliet, or, Ros uh, 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 or Rosalind and Orlando. The love of brother and sister, as in Twelfth Night, of mother and son, as in King John, father and daughter in Pericles and King Lear, husband and wife in Pericles again, and in The Winter's Tale. And, of course, Shakespeare's sonnets include some of the finest love poems ever written, as fresh and compelling now as they ever have been. At the basis of all Shakespeare's work, I suggest, is a love of humanity. He knows to what heights it can reach. What a piece of work is a man, says Hamlet. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. But Shakespeare knows, too, that man is a quintessence of dust, and he creates that archetypal image of Hamlet, the prince of men, staring into the empty skull of Yorick, the dead jester. Only a very few characters in Shakespeare's plays are purely evil. Aaron in Titus Andronicus, perhaps, Iago in Othello, perhaps a few others. Most even of Shakespeare's villains have a moment at which, with the sudden, brief opening up of a new perspective, we see them as desperately mortal, like the drunken murderer Barnardin in Measure for Measure, and the cowardly paroles in All's Well That Ends Well, 
is allowed his claim, there's place and means for every man alive. Shakespeare gives us a sense of an unexplained and inexplicable infinity, a world elsewhere, as Coriolanus says in words that resonate beyond the immediate situation. But he gives us a sense, too, that all of us have a place in this cosmos, a right to develop our talents, to express our emotions, to realize our individual beings to their fullest extent. To speak of Shakespeare as the world's greatest dramatist is inadequate. His status doesn't depend simply on his abilities as a dramatic craftsman. Other writers can compete with him in this. It would come closer to the mark, I think, to speak of him as a thinker, a philosopher, a psychologist, a poet possessed of the artistry that enables him to express his perceptions in dramatic form and in doing so to render those perceptions with a subtlety and communicative power which are more effective, if more elusive, than if they had been formulated in an expository manner. These are the marks of Shakespeare's genius that I personally value most. Thank you. Um, uh, a manifesto of what a political Shakespeare could, should be. A political Shakespeare that performs his own theme of hospitality, that is universally inclusive in that hospitality. You reminded me of what one of my favorite remarks on Shakespeare, what Jacques Derrida wrote when he said, if we need a model, if we seek a model of what Europe should be, it is the text of Hamlet, which though it must always, of course, remain true to its origin, which can never be recovered, must remain eternally open to new meanings and new migrant possibilities. That's a wonderful template for what academic life should be, open to new migrant meanings and new possibilities. You've given us the most wonderful new possibilities tonight and you remind us of what hospitality means. Now, Sir Stanley has, will not only take questions, he will relish questions, <laughs> revel in questions. So please, may I encourage you to ask them now in the same spirit in which he has spoken to us. Peter Smith. Stanley, thank you very much for that. Um, you spoke at some length about the ambiguities of the word O yeah. uh, and the, the kind of phatic um, possibilities that that single letter generates. I think, I guess the one that's always worried me, I don't know whether it's actually a speech or a stage direction, is Lear's how, how, how. Yeah. It's, I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yes, I have. Uh, it, again, it's one that can be... Sorry. 
Uh, Elias howl, 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 howl. I think it's four times, isn't it? It's open to variant interpretation, and I've seen it performed in more than one way. It's, properly speaking, it seems to me, Lear should come on holding the body of his dead daughter at this point. She may be a bit too heavy. There have been actors who have not been able physically to carry on their daughter. Robert Stevens couldn't when he played Lear. If you look carefully at Olivier in the television film, you'll see that although he does have Cordelia in his arms, there are pulleys and strings <laughs> holding her up. Uh, watch your Cordelia, or even perhaps weigh your Cordelia. <laughs> it, it may be a useful injunction to an actor. But those howl, howl, howls can be interpreted, like Earl, as an inarticulate cry of anguish. Not really a word at all, but oh, oh. Or there can be an injunction to the people on stage to join in Lear's grief and expressions of it. How? How? Oh, you are men of cheer. It is, is that cheer? Yes. Stone, so, uh, because they don't join in. Um, when McKellen did it, he did it both ways very cleverly. His first two howls were his own expression of inner anguish, and then the second two were addressed to the crowd. So it's another example of a sort of word which is also a non-word, a word which can be seen just as an inarticulate expression of suffering, but one which can also be seen as an injunction to other people to join in with Leo's suffering. Yeah, the question is about women playing roles which are either traditionally or which are certainly in the play, in the narrative of the plays, male roles. It's not a new tradition. I think it's fair to say that to start with. Sarah Bernard played Hamlet in the 1890s. Sarah Siddons played in the, eight, in the 1790s. Hamlet particularly is a role which has seemed accessible to female players, what else is, well, because Hamlet is, well, I leave it to you to imagine why Hamlet might have feminine qualities, might be seen to have feminine qualities. Intuition is one which we perhaps wrongly tend to associate more with women than, than with men, I don't know. Um, so that is uh, one example of a role which has for a long time, there's a famous Danish film, Astor Nielsen, uh, uh, where a woman is playing Hamlet, but uh, she, he turns out, in fact, to be a woman in the end, as Horatio discovers when he feels into his bosom when he's dead. Um, but in, in recent years, certainly, uh, we've seen, as I saw recently, uh, uh, Glenda Jackson, a very powerful Lear, I thought, and she played Lear as a man. Uh, whereas we've seen other actors, other female actors, play male roles as women, like uh, recently at the National, um, Tamsin Gregg playing Malvoli Ah, uh, and in the film of The Tempest, 
Helen Mirren, God, it was so boring, uh, playing uh, <laughs> Prosper Ah. Um, uh, and I, I think it only, I, I only judge those by whether they work or not. We had a very interesting series of plays at the Donmar where the plays were rather transmuted. Phyllis Lloyd directed them, Harriet Walter played Henry IV, Brutus, and Prospero. I saw Henry IV and The Tempest. I enjoyed them very much. They were partly because a full effort of imagination had gone into the recreating of an environment. They were played as if they were being played in a women's prison, which helped to give a rationale to the all-female cast. So uh, I didn't like uh, what I saw of the National Twelfth Night. I left at the interval. I was in a cinema. I thought it was badly over-directed uh, and excessively laboured in its efforts to make every, every, every touch, every word comic. But that's partly a dislike of the overall production rather than of the casting uh, and the re-personification of a central character. So I'm sorry, that's probably rather confusing. I, I think it just depends on how it's done, really. Sometimes I can take it and sometimes not. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think he, I, my suspicion is that he was reacting against the over-formalised uh, acting of the Lord Admiral's men, and one simplifying, but of Edward Allen, the heroic actor who strutted and fretted his time upon the stage in Marlowe's Tamberlin, for example. Uh, and Shakespeare is, I think, introducing a more naturalistic style of acting, which presumably has a lot to do with Richard Burbage, his, his central actor, and his style of acting. Uh, and I, I think, we, of course, we can't recall, uh, we don't have films from the period or, or recordings, even if we did, they wouldn't give us the real flavour because the audience, we are different. But uh, uh, there have been different theories, haven't there, about the style of acting. Keith, was it Keith Joseph wrote a book about Elizabethan acting in which he said it was all rhetorical and stylized, and then he rewrote the book ten years later and said he'd been wrong. Um, so I, 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 I personally think that you can only deduce what Shakespeare wanted by the style in which he writes, and he does write in some of the earlier plays in a more formal or more heavily rhetorical style, as he does in, perhaps in, in Titus Andronicus, the early histories in Richard III, but it does seem to me his, his writing becomes more supple, more subtle as well as supple, uh, uh, and uh, there are some speeches which you simply can't act 
in a high, heavily rhetorical style, like some of Hamlet's speeches. Or, or uh, Sometimes you can mix it, too, according to with Leontes, for example. You've got passionate outbursts, but never, which require a degree of obvious oratory, but nevertheless also require even more, perhaps, a great deal of interiority to them. So I think it's, it, it's, it's a subtle, subtly changing thing. I do believe that what, what one needs, this is part of why when I was in charge of the Oxford Complete Works of 1986, I was very keen that they should be printed in chronological order, as far as we know the chronological order, whereas the folio and many other editions print them generically, comedies, histories and tragedies. Histories is a, non, a non-genre anyway, because some histories are comedies and some histories are tragedies. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it's important to give people the opportunity, at least if they wish, or the incentive, to read Shakespeare from beginning to end and to sense the developing, the developing imagination and developing technique which the plays exhibit, right, from the two gentlemen of Verona through to the Tempest and the two noble kinsmen. That's a short answer, <laughs> relatively. David, David Sharpwick? No, sorry. I'm a professor. Thank you for an inspirational lecture. Could I ask you a personal question? During your lecture, you often refer to reading Shakespeare. And I wonder, do you read it aloud, or what sort of voice do you hear in your head? I don't often read it aloud or read a Shakespeare play aloud. I might occasionally do so if I'm testing out my sense of the audible effects. I think it's a good idea to read Shakespeare aloud, and I, quite, I like taking part in play readings. When I'm digging to myself, well, it's very complex. Often, of course, if I'm reading a play, now that I've seen them so many times, as I read, I hear the actors who made the most vivid impression on me as I spoke. Sometimes I almost have to try to dissociate myself from that, to try to experience the words afresh from one interpretation to another interpretation. So I, as, as usual, I'm afraid there's no straightforward answer to the question, but that's a, a shot at it. You mentioned um, a few of the musical interpretations of the various Well, Shakespearean music is a vast subject, of course, and uh, it, it varies so very much. There are, there are purely orchestral works, like Elgar's uh, Symphonic Study, Falstaff, for example, which, to my mind, is a wonderful musical evocation of Falstaff through the, through the plays, without any sort of literalism. There are the settings of the songs, some of which, uh, are right from Shakespeare's own time, we've got very few, but we just have one or two, right through to things like Britain's uh, 
serenade, uh, Nocturne, for example, where there's a Shakespeare sonnet, such, we, we have the operatic versions. The operatic ones tend to be closer verbally, but, you know, of all the operatic versions, the only one that makes much use of Shakespeare's words is, to my mind, one of the greatest, Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream, which uses almost entirely Shakespeare's words, but still only half of them. Uh, the, the great operas of Verdi, Verdi's Otello and Falstaff, above all, uh, are written to a libretti by Boito, which tra translate and re reshape, uh, reshape both the, the action and the language. But nevertheless, there is a, a, in the greatest art, you feel there's a sort of Shakespearean inspiration, I think. But some of them are not very good. Um, well, it's a big subject. I, I, I haven't any more to say about it, really, that I can say at this space of time. Yeah. Kingo, um, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. And I'd like to ask you about the flip side of Shakespeare's genius in a way that it becomes a burden to the extent that you have these sort of conspiracy theories of, of, of other people having written Shakespeare. And yeah. You find that, that this, this, this comes to deal with um, is Shakespeare as an extraordinary figure, that there are various different uh, groups who want to kind of take over Shakespeare on the cost that someone like Marlowe is not read, you know, his works are not read enough, or Bacon's works are not read enough. And that there's this sort of burden with being this sort of singular. Well, you, you could get me going. So, <laughs> perhaps you better not. I mean, I think an awful lot of crap is written about other people possibly having written Shakespeare. Of course, we are increasingly coming to realise that there's a certain degree of truth in it, in the sense that there are pockets of Shakespeare's plays in which he collaborated with other writers. Collaborate, the very word collaboration itself is a tricky word. I mean, in a sense, Shakespeare is collaborating with Plutarch when he writes Julius Caesar. He's collaborating with his actors. In any case, when, for example, in the second edition of A Midsummer Night's Dream, he rewrites some of the speeches to make them more theatrical, I, I, I would say. So, uh, uh, there, there is no single Shakespeare, but nevertheless, the idea that Shakespeare of Stratford didn't write Shakespeare is anathema. <laughs> I think on that um, spirit of collaboration we must draw to a conclusion um, it has been uh, the most wonderful conspectus um, of Sir Stanley's entire career and approach he's touched on so many aspects of his work not least there towards the end on his superlative crucial role as an editor Shakespeare, demonstrating for us the multifarious skills that it requires to be such an editor. I can't help but thinking that during the entire evening, the spirit of Sir Peter Hall, who would have loved, I'm sure, to have been with us at this theatre tonight to listen to this lecture, has in fact been among us, because the emphasis on the life of the line that Peter Hall represented, stood for, and campaigned for, and demonstrated throughout his work, and particularly his, his teaching, was, was given to us tonight, not only in the sublime beauty of the lines, but in the daily beauty of single syllables. And that is 
an extraordinary similarity, uh, symmetry, uh, that you've given us with, with Peter Hall's thinking. You brought together tonight uh, your two Kingstons. We are reminded that you're a man of Kingston upon a heart. And you have brought to Kingston upon Thames the lifetime's passion that you first um, experienced with Shakespeare at Kingston upon Hull. You've demonstrated in, in so many ways uh, what makes Shakespeare the center of our culture, and not only our English culture, but our European and our truly global culture at this moment and how, how, how vital that is. So, Sir Stanley, um, can I thank you once again for entertaining us, for demonstrating such hospitality, and uh, for demonstrating true, too, in all those asides that had us roaring with laughter, what people meant when they sent so many emails after you were knighted last year, that the night has been unruly. <laughs> May the night continue to be unruly. On such a night as this, a huge responsibility rests.